Welcome, everyone. This is Mac on the Rock with the Concrete Conservative WSQF 94.5 with marvelous Ed Vidal. I'm yours truly on 94.5. Ed, late on me, we have a special guest. Yes, today we have a call. No, no, wait a minute, time out. Luli goes first, man. You know, he's, you know. Ladies first. Ladies first, Luli Rodriguez, who saw this in, in, in development mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've come a long way, mm-hmm. and I'm so happy that she's uh, she was daring enough to cross the bridge, <laughs> where this is the only Fourth of July parade in four days for non-resident aliens. So we usually come here for the Fourth of July. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Lily, what's up? What brings you here, man? I'm so happy to uh, have you here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I came to see Ed's new book. I heard all about it. I wanted to hear more about it. Well, no, Ed didn't, uh, in, in didn't author the book. Ed is impressed with the book. The gentleman who's calling in uh, about nine minutes. But he's going to tell us it, about it. About the right. book, yes. Mm-hmm. And we're going to, it's a land of hope. We, as you know, we are all hoping that Democrats come around. I went to the d- debates. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we got, I didn't go into the debates. I mean, protest outside the debates. And of we course were, you did. <laughs> And we were shut down, the Wi-Fi was shut down, the phones were shut down, and the Trumpsters were all pissed off that we were all shut down. Mm-hmm. And it was universal. We asked each other. So that was the highlight of my day because I got to meet uh, an activist, which was the number one highlight, Laura Loomer, who yep. calls our mm-hmm. show that all the time. That was a good video. Mm-hmm. Laura, Laura, Laura's hardcore. Uh, she's the one behind the, the scenes in the Planned Parenthood camera work that was with O'Keefe. Mm-hmm. She's, uh, she was the camera. The view you see was not him. He's instigating mm-hmm. and she's also suing care and she's suing twitter and she's suing facebook yeah, she's been banned from twitter so wow. you know she's good she's good and she's also uh you know very jewish so she's pro-israel yeah, she she's believes. one of 12 conservative jews in florida <laughs> nice and we had four or five of them on the radio <laughs> yeah yes so yeah so we do this concrete conservative and mm-hmm. um you can go ahead and allow your policy to throw freely. Uh, we attack, but very moderately women. We, we, we go easy on the women. Men, we hammer pretty hard. But, mm-hmm. but, uh, Let's go easy on the women today. <laughs> so what brought you to the key after, I don't know, I haven't seen you in probably, I don't know, a year, 10 months? Mm-hmm. Well, I used to be on radio, as you know. Yes. Uh, I was a national radio and television producer for Univision for about 10 years. And then, um, and then I worked with. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm I'm doing a job interview, but and then I worked with Tony Hernandez, who's here on the key. He he lives on the key, and he works for Latino Broadcasting. Mm-hmm. And he did the Immigrant Archive Project, which was a beautiful. He still does it, a beautiful project. I love him dearly. And um, I was coming to the key because I enjoy your island very much. And I'm also selling an apartment here. What's that? That's usually, uh, usually why people come to the key. They're selling or buying something here. Yes, 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 yes. Are you a broker? I am working with a broker okay. who's a friend of mine. But so. she's in, you're basically interior design. I do interior design. So, um, and boy, it's, do you. It's a, it's a fixer-upper that, that we have. It's a 1-1 on Sunrise Drive. So well, I used to live there yeah. on Sunrise. Very it's cool. It's one of the older buildings, poolside, beautiful, very, very, very well priced. We wanted to go quickly, so please. Well, go ahead and say that. Go ahead and say, make it the full public service announcement. Why not? We're we're doing we're it's going for three hundred thousand, which is unheard of. You know, for the square footage, poolside, very nice, low taxes, low association, unheard so, of on the key. <laughs> perfect for a New Yorker who's being taxed out of New York. Uh-huh. That's right. That's right. All right, well, that's very cool. And it's uh, the address is? 
255 Sunrise Drive. Wow, 255 Sunrise Drive. Mm-hmm. And then you get to redecorate it or you already finished it? It's your, I'm included in the package. I'll help you redecorate it. Oh, that is so you cool. talk to my wife. She works at Calico Corner. She's an in-home oh, decorator. Oh, I love that place. Oh, so, so Katrina. I'm, sure we've, I'm sure we've met. Katrina oh, okay, okay, oh, okay. But she'll charge you more if you say her husband's name. <laughs> You know, because there's some kind of legal fees in there somewhere, somehow. They probably Commission. <laughs> Absolutely. No, no. Ed's yeah, nodding sure. his head. You know. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Yes. Uh, well, me and, me and Ed, what we do here is we, we are concrete conservatives. We don't budge. Mm-hmm. And Ed, even when he gets soft, mm-hmm. I crack his concrete slab. Mm-hmm. And But Ed, what he has that I'll never be able to have is the ability to get incredible, intelligent, forward-thinking people to call this show. Whoa. And then Ed's, uh, he's kind of a Ted Cruz, uh, Cuban wannabe Texan. I'm mm-hmm. a Texan. I, my wife and I worked on Ted Notice how he grabs his belt buckle. Campaign. <laughs> I saw. And here's our, here's our famous caller. Mm. This is WSQF 94.5, Concrete Conservative. My name is Mac, and you're speaking to Ed Vidal, and you're live on the radio here in South Florida. Who do I have a pleasure to speak with? Although I... This is me. Yes, Bill, this is Ed Vidal. Thank you for calling. Uh, my pleasure. Did I call the right number? Absolutely. You, You're now, on the right okay. uh, number. Now, I do hear you kind of faintly. Are you on a cell phone? I am, unfortunately. I, uh, I'm stuck out and about. Uh, I can switch over to landline in about 10 minutes. Okay, fair enough. Right, around there. six o'clock we'll have a break. Yes. Oh, at six. Oh, okay. Well, I may not be able to make the switch before then, but uh, yeah, you I can. Will we can do it. Do you, whatever you want. You can always make the switch because Ed, since he's a licensed attorney, he'll he'll want to talk anyway. No, and no. Even when I don't invite him to talk, he'll talk. All right. So let. let Okay, so, uh, Bill, thank you very much oh, for Oh, by the calling. way, we have another person in the studio, Luli Rodriguez. And Luli is a friend of mine from the, uh, days past who's also in radio. She's going to listen in, and hopefully she'll give us some opinions on she'll what you're saying. She'll make some good questions. Well, well, Bill, thank you very much for calling. I wanted to tell our audience that you are the author of a new textbook on American history. And uh, I saw your textbook featured in the Wall Street Journal about a month ago, so I knew I had to get you, because for too long now, and I know my kids had this in high school, uh, the, the, the main textbook for studying about American history has been a really anti-American book written by uh, Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States. And that came out in 1980, and it's still being used, especially in high school. So I welcome your book, because I think we really need a patriotic uh, book. And I I like the the title, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. So that's how we we got you on our sites. Well, a lot of a lot of people think that America is just a story. They don't believe it's a reality. They think no, it's some, it kind, of, it's both a some story kind of story and a reality. So thank you very much for doing all this work. So what what is it that prompted you to write the book? And what were you believing to be that was going to be different from other textbooks uh, other than, than the, the same old jibber-jabbish that, we, that I went through in public school? Yeah, well, it, it's, it, there's a, a sort of long version and a short version. I'll give you the middle version. Uh, it really was, I, I felt for a long time that we needed to have, uh, 
alternative textbooks. Uh, and how, you know, Howard Zinn is bad enough, but the, the mainstream textbooks, in a way, are worse, even though they don't take the kind of ideological line that Zinn takes. Uh, but they're well, what uh, what um they're disorganized. There, there's no sense of of the, the sort of greatness of the American story or the coherence of the American story. What America represents in the history of the world. Uh, and uh, uh, so I I I wrote a little book about 15 years or so ago for uh, ISI books called The Student's Guide to U.S. History, and it's about 100 pages long, and it's just a an introduction, um, and it's been very successful, uh, and uh, they, they've uh, kept it continuously in print all that time, and, and uh, I have people write to me for years now saying, uh, this is a great book, but you don't recommend a textbook, and I always wrote back and told them, it's because there is no textbook I can recommend, and, uh, you know, uh, after a while, you start to realize, well, gee, you know, maybe you should do it. Um, so the idea was in the back of my head. Then uh, in 2014, the College Board, which is the organization that administers advanced placement examinations, they came out with a revision of their history standards that was just atrocious. It, um, it was kind of unbelievable. It, it, uh, it took out George Washington, James Madison. It took out a discussion of the Constitution. Uh, and it's, you know, prerequisites, things that people needed to prepare for in order to take the AP exam. So you, uh, uh, do you start the book with, do you start the book as the, uh, like the history of the United States in order, and by chronological order, or you, you've got to make this interview, uh, Ed, you got to move him along, Ed. No, no, he's telling the story of why he wrote the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I That's, let me tell the story. Anyway, uh, what we discovered is a group of us protested this change in the exam. So this is really important. The AP exams are the gold standard for the way young people are learning American history. And so if they're uh, presenting a uh, false view, that's become almost the national standard. Right. So we, we felt we had to push back against this. And the, the long and short of it is that to do this effectively we had to write a textbook, and the, and the, the job fell to me. So I did it. Uh, and, I, and I did it reluctantly at first, because in my business, you don't really get much professional, uh, you know, props for doing a textbook. Uh, but in, in the end, I, I'm delighted that I did it. It was a labor of love. Well, and, uh, I'm very proud of it. One thing that I was interested in is you, you're doing it for Encounter Books. How did you uh, team up with that organization? Why did I do music encounter? Well, they, one thing, they approached me about it. Okay. And they convinced me that they were going to put their back into it and really give it a lot of publicity and a lot of attention and try to try to get, you know, non-traditional schools at first, non-public schools, but then other schools interested in adopting it. And uh, I... Uh, and I knew Roger Kimball, the publisher. I, I have enormous respect for him. Right. Uh, and so I just decided, uh, what the hell? And uh, I, I would take a chance with them. And, uh, and in fact, one of the side benefits of that, and it's not a side benefit really, is that they, they let me write the book exactly the way I wanted to. They didn't have 
people from various pressure groups or interest groups, or identity politics groups, coming in and telling me what to do, uh, I was able to write it myself. And it's all been written by one person, uh, proofed by my wonderful wife, Julie, uh, and some other friends, and uh, and by testing it out with high school teachers. I taught a lot of teachers over the years, and, uh, and they all were very, very positive about it. So, uh, so I, I, it isn't as if I wrote it in a void, but I was not... Uh, being instructed by uh, the politically correct committees that, that govern a lot of textbook, uh, the construction of textbooks. Okay, so, so... In other words, I couldn't have written it the way I did if I didn't, if I didn't do it in counter. Okay, but did you, did you, uh, have you run it by the Texas Department of Education yet? Yeah, that's where the money is. No, no, no I haven't run it by anybody's, uh, you know, uh, Department of Education yet. Yeah, if you get if you get that contract, uh, you're gonna you're gonna go public. You're gonna retire. Yeah, well, that would be wonderful. But you know, I, I uh, part of the it, it, it's like the problem of uh, in education. You know, you the expression "teaching to the test." Right. You know, and you don't want to teach to the test. In the same way, you don't want to write textbooks uh, to uh, clear the sensibilities of the textbook committee. Right. Because a lot of them are looking for the wrong thing. All right. They're so, is, is my is my particular interest group being represented here? Does he say enough about coal miners? Does he say enough about you know this or that sexual group or whatever? Right. And I just wasn't going to do it that way. Uh, and, uh, no. What what kind of reception have you been getting? For example, I saw the Wall Street Journal was very positive. So what what kind of reception have you gotten from other media sources? How about liberal media sources? kind of reviews have you been getting? For example, the New York Times, the New York Times book review? Oh, no, no. Uh, no, the New York Times will then, uh, probably never review. This is how they, uh, and, and you know, if they do, it won't be, it won't be favorable. It, it, it's, uh, you know, that's just uh, uh, the way it is. Uh, well, you don't, is, are you saying that? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to seem so uh, negative, but it, it's not pessimism, that's realism. <laughs> what about who has reviewed your book? How about like the uh, Society of American History or historians? Well, you know, I, I've uh, 
they're, they're, I think, aware of it. Uh, they, they don't, um, they don't take, pay much attention to secondary school education. Okay. Organization. And, and it's a shame, uh, but they don't. I, I think that, in fact, university college professors, uh, they don't really pay much attention to what goes on in high schools and middle schools. And uh, that's something that I, I, have, I was that way for a long time. And then, and then I had children, and then uh, I, uh, and, and by the way, we homeschooled our children, but so they, have, Great. they got an excellent history education from my wife and me. But, well, we, uh, we look forward to meeting Mark McClay, who's a professor at University of Miami. Oh, he's a cane. All right, so now this interview is, uh, is taking off here, so we got a cane, huh? Okay, all right, Ed, go ahead. But you don't. What what other uh, what other reviewers have you gotten that have been positive? There's um, there's been a lot of re- reviews uh, in online publications. Like okay. Journal of Law and Liberty uh, had a great review by Ted McAllister, a history professor from Pepperdine. Uh, uh, it was reviewed at the University of Brooklyn by Bruce Brown, and uh, uh, you know it, it's there, there probably been about a dozen. Reviews, uh, not in you know places like the New York Times or the Washington Post, and you know I'm not holding my breath uh, on those or the New York Review of Books. Uh, but um, it, it, I'll tell you one thing: I do have the blurbs that I have are from a remarkably wide array of people. That is the endorsements that actually appear on the book jacket. Um, and one of them I'm particularly proud of is from Gordon Wood. Yeah who is probably the most eminent uh, living uh, historian of the United States. And he says, I I paraphrase, this is a book that every American needs to read, and it teaches why why we should be patriotic and what the right kind of patriotism is. So uh, that was like, that tingled up my leg. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we're going to recommend it to a lot of the uh, new Americans that we run into down here. In South Florida. Yeah. Now, did you did you construct the book for homeschooling or for uh, standard no. public schooling or private schooling for that matter? The way I put it, you know, and every writer kind of who is, you know, the person who is writing
uh, non-tendentious, non-biased uh, view of the American past that really sees it for what it is, and that is a great story. Well, here in South Florida, we have a lot of uh, immigrants, new immigrants. Yes. And so we're, I'm going to recommend this to several of them. I'm going to be speaking at a Venezuelan-American uh, club meeting in about a month or so. And one of the points that I had to make to them is that here in America, we don't look to the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights from 1948 yes. for our rights. Yes. We, we look back to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So I'm going to give them some pocketbooks. But I'm also going to show them your book. You need to get a the. I I think they're going to go for the paperback copy. But I'll show them what I have. I have a copy right here. There won't be a paperback edition for about a year. That's what they told me the publisher. So I I tried to talk them into you know coming sooner, but they. Uh, no, I understand. Well, you're, I'm going to show them what I have, and they can go out and order it on Amazon. Well, you're going to have to have a, uh, an additional chapter on Simon Bolivar. The rest no, of Venezuelans no, no, are no, not going to no, even no. pay attention to no, you. No, no, no. Forget Jeez. it. They have to become Americans, not yeah, uh -huh. Venezuelan Americans. And they got to learn English. And, uh, One of the things I, I, that I, I'm very, you know, I'm very pro, uh, pro immigration. I'm not pro. Uh, open borders, or you know, any of what's going on now, but uh, or most of what's going on now. But I'm, I'm very pro. Uh, I'm very pro uh, asylum for Venezuelans. We have several of them at my university who are among my best friends. And uh, uh, one, of the one of the things I stress in the book is that you know, we shouldn't lose we shouldn't lose sight of the way in which immigration is something that has again and again renewed our sense of promise, our sense of ourselves as a nation. Yes, but only if the immigrants, now wait, but only if the immigrants come lawfully so that they don't undermine the rule of law in coming and they become Americans. They assimilate, indeed, absolutely. You know, you guys are so, you know, saltine cracker, you know what I mean? What you got to hope for is for Anglo-Americans to start reproducing again of not this whole country's going to be Hispanic Cause we're, no, I, but we have to teach the Hispanics to become yeah. Americans, and this book is part of that. Okay, okay, I, th there I agree, but you're still going to have to publish it in Spanish. <laughs> no, you got to. English is the language of liberty. Uh -huh. English if is the language. If you want to speak Spanish, go back to Cuba. Uh, yeah, or yeah, yeah. I uh, uh, Bill, we, the three people here in the studio are all Cuban Americans. So no, we're not. You're Cuban American. Me and Luli are American Cubans. All right. Yeah, they were born here. I, I no, immigrated. no, no. I was born in Cuba. Oh, she's there a Cuban American. No, yeah, two me. people here were born in Cuba. I came when I was nine. How old were you? I was three years old when I left the island. <laughs> yes. Right. Well, she, I mean, so you were born in Cuba. I didn't know that. I was born in Cuba. I left um, on a plane, not on a raft. <laughs> and we, we went to we went to Spain, and I came from Spain to the United States at the age of seven, alone on a plane, and claimed my family later on. Oh, my God. And, mm -hmm. and it was done on purpose or because you were studying? Um, during that time... The archdiocese uh, here in South Florida had a program where you you would tell your firstborn could come with a visa, like a study visa. Right. And uh, and I came over with a study visa, but I was seven. So you were an anchor student. You were an, I anchor, was an student. anchor student. Okay. Yes, oh, that's very cool. So yes. what would you think of a book like this? The 
I would I would have loved it. When I was when I I remember being seven years old, and in class and having everyone sing Old MacDonald had a farm, and I thought everybody was crazy. <laughs> so you know it. it Plus, really... you saw McDonald's down the street. You right, thought, what right, does right, a hamburger right, have right, to do right, with a farm? Right. So, so truthfully, I do believe that that immigrants should learn the language. I believe that also there's a lot of them that try to learn the language, and it becomes difficult. Well, and uh, and well, in Miami, it's kind of hard to learn English. Yeah, right. it's Miami just difficult. Yeah, yeah. But, Miami, we, but we have seen that even with the Italians and the Irish that came over, that it was hard for them to learn yeah, the language, they and, they stuck, English, and they stuck, and they stuck. become Americans. Yeah. I, you know, Bill, I think your book is really important because not only do people have to learn the language, they also have to learn the story of America, and you're that telling it. Yes. That I believe, yes. yes. Yeah. That, that's, and that's one of the things. I have a final chapter that is uh, um, unusual because it's devoted to, you know, the, the concept of American patriotism and what yeah. what shape it takes. And that uh, it, it, part of it is the principles that are in the Declaration of Independence, but part of it is also simply the story. You know, the Declaration doesn't tell us about the great events of American history, the, you know, the great uh, the, the great victories of the Second World War, for example. Right. We just celebrated uh, an observance of D-Day, which right. I was so happy to see uh, such a response to that in the country because, you know, for so many of the students I teach, uh, this is this might as well be the Battle of Thermopylae. They're, they're, they're not, they don't, it's ancient history for them. But, well, um, but there are a lot of Americans who still know and, uh, well, you know, uh, oh, go ahead. No, let me tell you something about me. I was born in Cuba, and I my family came in when I was nine years old in 1966. And when I found out, and I was nine, uh, when I was, I guess, seven years old or so, my parents started making preparations. And one of the things that I read uh, in getting ready to come to America, I read a lot about Abraham Lincoln, but I also read Cornelius Ryan's book, uh, The Longest Day. Longest Day, yeah. And so I really got steeped into that landing at Normandy. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's part of, you're right, it's, being an American is not just the ideology, that is important, but it's also the experience, sharing that experience, thinking. Increasingly, you know, you you will encounter, and it's often expressed in a very civilized way. Kids will say, "Well, you know," minority kids of various kinds will say, "Well, you know, that's your story, but that's not uh, that's not my story." I said, "Well, no, it 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 really wasn't my story until I learned it, right? Made it my own, and you can do that too, right? This this is not like." France, where you, you, you know, right. come from somewhere else, you're, you're never going to be French. Okay, so. but let me tell you something. Uh, there are some, um, for example, here in, in Miami, we have uh, a lot of Cuban-Americans, and they will tell you some, especially like when they're running for pu- public office, they'll tell you the story about their immigration. And there's a woman who's running for Congress, and she tells a story about how she came on the Mariel boat lift when she was four years old, and she was on a boat that had a 23-person capacity, and there were 49 people on it, and she could see the sharks under the Florida Straits and all that. And that's a story that a lot of us can relate to, because we came one way or the other, but, you know, for example, uh, I don't think African-Americans can relate to that story, like Jesse no, Jackson. And, and it's important uh, in a book like this one to make sure that you're, you know, you're, you're, you give due 
way to the exceptions right. to the rule, but they are exceptions to the rule. They're not the rule. Um, right. And and, uh, uh, and and that's important too, not to sort of lose the sense of what the overwhelming uh, you know uh, sense of opportunity that that uh, people have had, and you know, and of course they still want to come here. Right. You know, well, the the funny thing is, if America is as bad as Black Lives Matter make it out to be, then why are all these Africans coming through right now? There are about five hundred people from the Congo in uh, getting into Texas. Yes. What are they doing? Well, yeah, of course it's disingenuous to, to talk about our rottenness, but um, uh, you know, I I can't plumb the motives of these kind of people, all I can do is point to, I mean, I'm a historian, I'm not a right. prophet, or, or even a particularly wise observer of current events, but, um, but I think we have a, an amazing past in terms of the uh, sheer quantity of immigrants that this country has accepted and has flourished. I right. mean, we've had tensions, of course, we've had, uh, you know, ethnic tensions, we've had racial tensions, but we've largely succeeded. Uh, in, uh, in building a multi-ethnic, multi-racial society. And um, we should be proud of what we have accomplished because what we're doing is incredibly difficult and has it's something in which almost nobody has ever succeeded for very long in history. Okay, but right now the progressive movement is totally opposed to what you just said. What movement? The progressive movement. You know, this identity oh, yeah. politics from the left. Yeah. I mean, there's an incoherence about the current form of progressivism because on the one hand, it wants uh, to build a, a society in which uh, we have this sort of high level of solidarity and, and commitment to the, to the, to the, to the state, to the, the, um, to the whole, and yet you have to have this insane level of identity politics in which people... Uh, focus on group rights and group entitlements and group grievances, and which um, sort of sustain the differences that we ought to be moving beyond. Not completely, you know. Uh, uh, Mexicans don't have to, to start eating nothing but roast mutton. No, no, no. In fact, I think you know. You know. And, and religion, religious freedom is a very important part of what right. uh, people come here for, and they shouldn't be. Told, well, okay, you were Catholic in Mexico, but now you have to be Protestant or whatever. No, but, been, but for example... Know, we, we, weren't, uh, we weren't flawless in that regard so, uh, for much of the 19th century, but, um, it, it, and, you know, it's important to present the, that as a struggle. Okay, but let me ask you, when a Mexican immigrant visits the Alamo and he wants to become an American, who should he cheer for? Yeah.
I think a lot of uh, people, something I want to call your attention to in the book is the epigraph, which a lot of times people don't pay any attention to that. And I think I've got a real uh, zinger of an epigraph. It's from the novelist John Dos Passos. Right. He, he basically says, you know, he, that uh, we, we need to know the past, among other reasons, so that we, we get past what he called the idiot delusion of the exceptional now. And what, what what that means is that, and I see this all the time with my students, with people my own age even, that we're living in an era that's so exceptional, so different, so, uh, you know, era, previous eras didn't have social media, didn't have this or that, uh, didn't have instantaneous communications, uh, you know, that, that there's just simply no way of comparing the world we're living in now and the challenges of it to what people in the past face. And that's just rubbish. But it is a way of dismissing all of history as being irrelevant, um, particularly when you take the view that the people of the past were sort of more morally deficient, because after all, they tolerated um, all kinds of, uh, of enormities and sins that we, in our enlightenment, um, will no longer tolerate. I, one of the things I really try to press in this book is that we should not we should not be condescending towards the past we owe everything to those who came before us and we should be appropriately not you know uncritically reverent but we should be grateful be grateful for the things that we have well, um, well wilfred and, uh, I, I think i think what's happening a lot in modern era is that we're so overwhelmed with so much information at our fingertips we become um, insensitive to the greatness of people who were very obedient to their cause, made a lot of sacrifices. Therefore, our children are very unimpressed with yeah. with greatness. They uh, greatness has been diluted. There are certain things that are just great, period, and they should be revered, and they're not because, quite frankly, they're very accessible. They're overwhelmed by it, and nobody really uh, takes seriously great acts anymore. And what happens is. Uh, we fall into the doldrums, and there's there's a term on the internet that pretty much describes, uh, put it this way, the, what I just said, where I'm I'm telling you to go to the internet, and I'm, and I'm not saying go to the Webster's Dictionary. I'm saying go to the internet and Google, fractally, fractally wrong. When the premise is wrong, everything that comes after is more wrong, and we live in a fractally wrong society today, where people are looking at the Urban Dictionary for words that are not in the Webster Dictionary to explain yes. the behavior of others. Yeah, yeah. No, I, it, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a whole, I mean, education should be about... Wonder, I, wonder and I, curiosity. Yeah, ushering people into uh, a full membership in the society of which they're already a part. So that they know, it's like the difference between living in a city, just sort of wandering around without any idea what you're doing, and having somebody show you a map show you where, what, the, what the street names are, show you how to navigate from here to there. Um, that, in a sense, is, 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 is analogous to uh, what we ought to be doing um, in, in, in instructing young people about their nation's past. But because it is, it, it is their nation. You know, this whole kind of, well, this is, you know, this was a white person's nation or this was the Anglo-Saxon nation or whatever. That's, that's baloney. That, that's simply, uh, and it can be your nation if you make it. You now, know, Bill, it, is our, appropriate. That's such an amazing thing. Are, are contemporary uh, colleges and universities doing that job, though? Oh, 
don't know. I don't think so. I think uh, there, there's, there's a kind of, um, well, there's certainly a sense that, that, you know, the word nationalism right now has a very bad odor, and patriotism not much better, although sometimes people will distinguish between the two in favor of patriotism. But, but I think the, the, the idea that, uh, that, that, except when it comes to, and this is a great contradiction, except when it comes to the provision of health care and, uh, um, and, and social welfare of various kinds, uh, the state can't be trusted. Uh, so right. um, uh, the state operates in the interests of the ruling elites or some other way of formulating it. So, uh, so there's a lot of distrust. And, you know, and I think distrust of government is, is part of our heritage. We should. We well, should. I think Americans have always distrusted government since its founding. And, and, I, and I think a healthy distrust. Of course. Government's an opiate of society. Have, it always has been. We have a Second Amendment, <laughs> among other things. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm all for that. But I also think that if you're, it's a contradiction to sort of demand that we sign over, you know, our, a huge sector, sector, sector of our economy to government control and then say, but we can't trust the government. Well, either you, either you trust the government or you don't trust the government. You can't have it both ways. Well, I don't think anybody really called for government to be in our lives. I believe that was imposed on us uh, originally from from Woodrow Wilson onto FDR, onto LBJ, and they they did a masterful job of becoming uh, of allowing our nation or forcing upon us a nation of statists and statism. And now well, we're, you know, we that, are in debt because be, of it. That may be so, but I think that that uh, there uh, part that, that if you're if you if you're right then part of part of our task is to, to re-educate uh, people in truths about human nature and about what form of government is best that that we used to know, but have forgotten or have been uh, blinded against. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, that, it's, it's, so your book. A big part of what 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 we need to do. Now, so I, I don't uh, I don't do this in a tub something propagandistic way in the book. I and I, I think. Uh, uh, you know, in, in many cases, I, I try to present both sides. I try to, you know, the, the progressives had a certain rationale for what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, some of the programs that were instituted during the, the Great Depression had a certain rationale. Uh, but we, what we need to be told, and my book does say, say this, is that they failed. They were not successful on their own terms, right. and, yet, uh, and yet they linger on. Um, so we, we haven't learned from that history because we do have groups and individuals who, who, whose self-interest is, in, in whose self-interest it is to perpetuate a big uh, national state, and uh, that's yeah, part of the battle that's going on right now. Is, is there? It's been going on since Ronald Reagan. Is there a way to, um, to really reduce the size and scope? of the national government. There's no way. <laughs> There's absolutely no way because people people need need to be elected and to be elected you need to lie and to, you need to lie, you need to make promises you can't keep and you have to take from someone else to give to someone else if you're going to make a promise. Um, I wrote a book as well, but my book took a different angle. I uh, I make an accusation and I like to say it and I love to see Ed chagrin every time I say it cuz he's heard it over and over again. But I make a statement that's very true, and it's kind of hard to prove me wrong. I make the statement that the reason why nobody can reduce the size of federal government 
and both political parties are the different wings of the same bird, it's because 38% of the GDP of the, of the $22, million, $22 trillion U.S. economy is government spending, putting the U.S. government alone between its assets, its liabilities, and its uh, ex- expenses and um, um, employee base makes it the, the third largest economy in the world all by itself at $7.3 trillion. Because that's thirty-eight. That's thirty-eight percent of twenty-three trillion dollars. And until you realize yeah. that that makes the whole world go around, because foreigners also do business with us, and they also bid on contracts, and they also get stuff from this government. And the U.S. currency is the world's currency. You can see how political parties will never shrink the size of the federal government because it's the third largest economy in the world by itself. Well, sure. No, look, we all have. We all have a stake in some way. We're all getting we're all getting a little bit paid a little bit. We we all and we all have a stake in Social Security, for example. Uh, I don't have a stake. I don't uh, expect uh, to get it. Well, yep. okay. I, I don't I don't collect it either. But I when the time comes, I will. Uh, it'd be crazy not to. But um, uh, it, but it's it's a terrible set up in a, in a very, very bad slapdash way. And Not only that, but he created an enormous set of conflict of interest voters, and that's well, wrong. Yeah. Well, it, it, cre- it created uh, certain interests. Uh, that's the way I But would. in the millions, we're talking about millions of people vote yeah. every election that are already receiving or about to receive Social Security, and they're going to vote on, they're going to vote for someone who's going to yeah. guarantee it for them. That's a conflict of interest. Interesting, and, uh, and again, I don't, I'm not much of a commentator on contemporary affairs, so I, I'm, I'm, I don't usually go there. But, but something that was interesting about the 2016 election is that, and, and surprised a lot of people, is that Trump was uh, absolutely opposed to cutting Social Security, and, and, and everyone, and, and he made, uh, he kind of went against the, the Republican Party's rhetorical grain. Uh, in that, when I say rhetorical, because uh, yeah, because you, know, you can't do it anyway. one thing and doing it are, are two different things. But, right. Uh, uh, well, um, but he hasn't done anything about the other point that you make, which is the national debt, and that's he's, tri- he's tripled for both it. Parties. <laughs> he that, tripled it. Yeah. He, you know, Obama is the biggest offender. Yep. You know, and, and George W. Bush and uh, Trump trailing them, but Trump hasn't had much time to build the deficit as, as much time, but. You know, uh, it, it's it's I, I uh, one of the things I wanted to do in the last latter part of the book is I, I I I didn't want to get into the weeds about contemporary issues that we don't really have much perspective on. But I wanted to say, from in a big picture way, there are certain things that we can see right now that are deeply problematic, and that that generations to come are going to say. I can't believe that people back in 2019 couldn't see that the country was on a collision course with disaster because of Social Security and Medicare. Basically, those two, those two programs uh, that that will. Uh, but, but in general, the national debt, 22 trillion dollars, and and growing uh, by a trillion at least every year. For for RCI, I can see this. There is no way this ends well, and. Uh, Anyone can see it. Everyone knows it, uh, and nobody does anything about it. It, it is, it is appalling. Uh, and and I do think that, that that the day I won't live to see it, uh, but the day will come when when people will say, "My, 
Mommy, Daddy, why didn't people do anything? And uh, it will be very hard to explain. Uh, well, I'll just I'll just tell them. Look, when the food line breaks out, I'll be serving food. Yeah, yeah. That's all I got to say, you know, because I, I definitely uh, sound the horn along with thousands of others. But we're back to the, the 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 wings of the same bird. Uh, you you just can't stop this this train when the money can be printed out of thin air, and everybody lives off the U.S. government in one way or another. I say the story well, of uh, Chef now, Boyardi. Okay, here's where I think I'm going to disagree with you because I think that I, as a, um, as a, as an educator and as a, as an American patriot, um, I can't accept uh, an utterly nihilistic, cynical view of the future. That I, I, I think it's very rare in human history that that people, uh, as citizens, take take hold of a situation like the one we've put ourselves in. Well, and, well, well, Wilfred, if you disagree... Do, let me finish. Try to do something about it. But, um, okay, but you said yourself that, that you'd be... Cr- back to, wait, let me finish. Let me finish. Then you can have that at me. Um, uh, it's very rare, but it can be done. If you look at, at back at Alexander Hamilton's first Federalist number, he says, you know, this, this we are deciding the issue of whether a government's based on, uh, on rationality and choice can be set up or whether it's just always dependent on, on accident and force. And uh, that's been, you know, with a theme that has been part of the hope of America is that this would be a place where we weren't just blown along by the winds of chance, but that we could we could take a hand in, in ruling ourselves in ruling, uh, and learning from the past. Uh, so I can't give up on that, and I can't give up on that in teaching my students, more importantly, even if in my heart... There are times I feel, you know, we're just not going to make it. It's nothing is ever going to change. I can't get up there and teach that to my students. I yeah. have to give them hope. I don't disagree and with you from this. I don't disagree with you from the romantic angle of what what providence is for this country. But like Ed said and I said, we're son of immigrants. We know how bad things could get. Uh, the trajectory of my life completely changed when my parents left uh, Cuba. And uh, so I'm already on my second country. In other words, I'm born here by chance. And I really fight hard to keep the country free. But until people come to the grips where Social Security has to go away, it has to be redirected in, I don't know, health savings accounts, for instance, there has to be an incredibly large segment of this population that is no longer even thinking about having Social Security as you and Ed are um, basically worried about not getting it. If you... Do you honestly, could you make an honest statement? Uh, would you be in financial peril or in financial nervousness if you were retired and not receiving Social Security? It, it, no. It would, I, I, I've always assumed it wouldn't be there. Right. Uh, just as a working assumption. Most people don't, so, don't expect it. Don't say that. That's not true. Most yeah. people are right. living their day-to-day, paycheck-to-paycheck, and without their Social Security at 75, they're screwed. Okay? Don't tell me that. That's not true. Very few people are living off uh, mutual funds or stock portfolios or anything like that. Maybe 5% of the population, maybe 5%. The rest are really well, living I, off Social Security. I tend to keep working as long as I can because I love what I do. Right. And I feel like it's important. Uh, so I don't live off of, uh, off of my investments either. But, uh, but I, 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 preparing for retirement, I have ever ever assumed that Social Security was going to be. I, I, I don't even calculate it into the, the numbers that I run. Uh, so, uh, and I, I, I can't say about other people. I mean, 
a lot of my friends think the same way. Not necessarily my academic friends. <laughs> my <laughs> the friends. tenured uh, friends. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the people who work in the real world uh, uh, are, are likely to say the same thing. Well, well it's, it's interesting, though. Know, that I, it, I, it, I, Look, here's where I agree with you. I think that, um, it, that we need, and this is something, unfortunately, true of Americans. Uh, you know, as Churchill said, Americans can be counted on to do the right thing after they've tried every every other expedient. Right. Uh, and we, we often do the right thing at the last moment. And in a way that, um, you know, I could give examples of this, but uh, the Second World War could be one of them. But, but uh, you know, if we come in earlier, if, uh, if things would have been different. Um, you know, there's a lot of things like that. But that, but that I think uh, we need a crisis to mobilize, to act, and uh, we need Pearl Harbors, we need, you know, things like that. Um, uh, what's, what's really very dis- disgusting to me is how quickly the mood of the country after 9-11 uh, faded, how quickly that all of that was forgotten, it didn't it? It, it was, uh, you remember when it happened, everyone was saying it's the day that changed America forever. Well, it didn't change much of anything. It just it just postponed the the ferocity of the battles between Democrats and Republicans for a little while longer. But it came back, and, uh, and it hasn't really left since. Well, not only that, after September 11th, keep in mind that Barack Obama brought 75,000 Muslim immigrants into the United States, and at a time when terror was dead on our minds, not only did a country uh, uh, elect someone with such a name, which... But for better yeah, with or worse, such a background. Yeah. With, with such a background, but not only did we elect them, but we reelected them, and he fundamentally transformed America, and he brought seventy five thousand supposedly Somali, yeah, who are now have elected officials they here, have their own congresswoman, and they are not going to assimilate, and right. th- that's the error of our ways because we elected someone based on our ideals. And it's very formidable to do what we did as a country, even though I didn't vote for him either time. But it's formidable for this nation to have done what it did from an ideal standpoint, because the rest of the world and the Western world looks at the United States and says, hey, we haven't done that. And they, America did do that. But well, look. They were doing it in Germany uh, for a while in, in kind of spectacular, uh, spectacularly misguided ways. And then Angela Merkel was sort of forced to trim her sails. But, but yeah, look, I think. One one thing, and I, I'm not going to—I don't, I don't have a uh, opinion about uh, Obama's motives, but I think that for a lot of Americans, their acceptance of you know all these Somali immigrants was um, it, it, yeah, it's very virtuous. Reflected, reflected a very sort of soft-minded um, compassion on their part that I think is is. Uh, it's sort of it's foolish. It's but it it also is grounded in a certain view of our history that this is a country that has been so successful at assimilating immigrants that it can assimilate anybody uh, and and any any kind of immigrant group and and now unfortunately that no, I think unfortunately match. Unfortunately, this is going to be the obsession. I bet you your books are not going to be selling very well <laughs> up in uh, Somaliland, uh, Minnesota. Not only that, but uh, Europe already tried the experiment. They brought Muslims into their country because yeah, of low birth rates. Mess. 
France is a mess. France, Italy, Greece, name Spain, name um, you know what they did in well, Barcelona. I will say this: I've get, gotten great. I, I have gotten some great reviews in Minnesota uh, from the like the Powerline uh, blog. Right, sure. Uh, you know those guys. <laughs> but they're very skeptical of the Somalis. Well, ex- well, explain to the audience who are this Powerline. Powerline is a libertarian blog up in Minnesota, and they are very skeptical of the Somali and uh, the whole uh, t- uh, Congresswoman uh, Omar Ilhan. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not surprised they gave you a good review. That's what they need up there. But let's see if yeah. they can sell any of these books. Well, what they run against her is a question. Judgment and and maybe maybe the intentions behind it were, were sinister, but I, I I really tend to think they were foolish rather than sinister. But um, and based on a you know the, the Americans feel very guilty about uh, this is what Howard Zinn and people like that do. They feel very guilty about the periods in our past in which we have been um, hostile to immigrants and uh, nativists and mm. so on and and. Uh, I've always felt that uh, while those episodes are not attractive, uh, the historians, are, they put their fingers on the scale so much, they don't give way to the fact that people uh, feel that when, uh, when people from entirely different religious, ethnic, other backgrounds come in uh, to their world, uh, that it feels like an invasion. Right. And, uh, you know, and that's that, that that's maybe it shouldn't feel maybe it shouldn't react that way all of that but uh, uh, when you read a, a historical account it doesn't give a sense of the human environment and the human uh, struggles that are involved in, in accommodating that kind of change well, um, you get a very it, then it all becomes just sort of a question of hate you know right. the, 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 the cure all world word today is that everything bad in the world is because of hate and you know that's not a very subtle or significant analysis of what well, but on. I'll give you a couple of examples today, which is, first of all, of course, the, the uh, Muslim immigrants, especially from Somalia and el- elsewhere, that are not assimilating, and I don't think they're going to be able to assimilate. But as a Cuban-American, a Cuban immigrant, I can also see the immigrants not only for, not just from Mexico, but especially from Central America. They're marching here with their flags. What are they doing? Yeah. No, this is absurd. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's something that I, this is where I think the great history of American immigration in the years between, say, 1870 and the 1920s, you know, which is the the, the great period of American immigration. It's not when we got uh, most of our Cuban Americans, but it's when we got our Italian Americans, yep, yep. Polish Americans, the Greek Americans, and you know, et cetera. Um, uh, it, that's a, that's an amazing story. It's, a, it's, a, it's a full of all kinds of drama and and tragedies and and uh, hu- human interest stories. But it's basically a triumph, and it's because, as one of you said earlier, uh, it, it, it Americans really knew then what their nation was. They knew uh, what it meant to assimilate to America. Now. Um, it's not so clear. Well, you know, they're that, discouraged that, from assimilating. I don't think there's any reason for it to be unclear, but we have 
multiculturalists and other doctors right. that, that have confused the issue of what it means to be an American. They're and discouraging we assimilation. That, we're in trouble. Yeah, well, what's happening is that the progressives are discouraging assimilation and promoting a balkanization of American culture. And these immigrants, the Muslims especially, but also the Mesoamericans from Mexico and Central America, are are going right along with it. And, you know, when you, when you, when you come to uh, Texas waving your Honduran flag or your Mexican flag, that's, that's not the right way to do it. No, and, 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 and the thing that I worry about is, I mean, I think that this is all likely to eventuate in, in violence of... Right. Uh, of the, uh, possibly horrific dimensions, right? Uh, and it, it's uh, it's just a gross act of res- irresponsibility on the part of uh, a government, of the courts, and other agencies of government that have been trying to prevent the, the country from from right. But it but it has turned a, it, a decent policy. But you know, this, this is where I think the lessons of the past need to be learned in the right way. That we are a nation. Uh, exceptionally friendly to immigration, um, and that's that's what, that's always been true of us. Um, you know, except maybe in the years between roughly 1920 and 1960, uh, 65, uh, 1925, 1965, when when we reduced immigration to a trickle. But that was really so that after this giant uh, gulp of uh, of immigration, that we could we could assimilate. We California, the whole state of California. That's the heart, the, the the future. Yeah. Of yeah. one vision. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, we're at the six o'clock hour, so we're going to break for five minutes, and then we're going to come back here on Blink Radio WSQF ninety four point five with Mister McClay. If you like our programming on WSQF 94.5 in Key Biscayne, you can also hear us very far away nationwide, WSQFradio.com. And if you like our audio files and our subject matter, subscribe to YouTube Mac on the Rock Rampage. Take care and stay free. <laughs> 